Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Janice Min. Uh, Janice, uh, I, I could run through a whole long list of places that she worked, but I, I want to just highlight two in particular before we get to her new gig. Turning Around Us Weekly, very big job, and Turning Around the Hollywood Reporter, another, another very big job. And now she is moving on to a new and exciting challenge working. I mean, I, how would you describe it exactly, the, the situation at the Angler? I, I don't want to step on Richard's toes by calling it a takeover or a purchase. I think it's a partnership. It's a partnership. It is not a hostile takeover. Uh, Richard and I have been talking about this for a while. I was absolutely enamored by his newsletter called The Ankler and came to him with this idea that we could make this into maybe a bigger thing. And uh, so this one man show is now, you know, a two person show and growing. So longtime listeners of the show will will know Richard because he's been on the show a couple times. In fact, he was the first guest of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood a long time ago. And we we always love having him on. His newsletter, The Ankler, is is a must read as far as I'm concerned. And I'm very excited to see what you guys do with it to beef it up. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about your your previous jobs, because I'm, I'm very curious to compare and contrast what uh, what what you've done before to, to what you're doing now, uh, the work at the Hollywood Reporter that you did. Walk me through joining the Hollywood Reporter and turning that into something a little bit more substantial than it was. I yeah. think is a fair way to. I, I mean, I think that I'll preface all that by saying. I think when you're starting your career out or even at various points in your career, you think like you need a plan. There's going to be a plan and everyone else has a plan and you don't have a plan. And and I have never found that to be the case for me. I, my husband and I, we lived in New York city. We lived in Soho. We had these two at that, at that time toddlers. And we just found living in New York city really just overwhelming. And I have these memories of, trying to take our little ones to preschool and it's pouring rain and you're like wheeling your stroller as fast as you can down the street because you don't have an umbrella, all those things that make life in New York difficult. I also, I grew up in Colorado and I just hate being cold, um, which is, sounds trivial, but is a, <laughs> it was a real quality of life situation. So we sort of were thinking, okay, what can we do? Let's move to California. And this was sort of before everyone from New York moved to Los Angeles. Um, we had originally set our sights on Northern California and thinking, and I, I, I had resigned us weekly at that point and sort of wanted another adventure. Um, and so we thought, let's just go figure it out in Northern California. And then, um, and then all of a sudden I got a call. We had listed our apartment for sale and it had made it in the, uh, venerable page six. And, um, and so that, <laughs> that resulted in an executive named Richard Beckman, who had worked at Condé Nast for many, many years, running ad sales, reaching out to me. And he asked to have breakfast right away. Uh, we went to the Bowery hotel, which I'm sure many, many people who follow this know about that hotel. And he made this crazy pitch. He had joined this company um, private equity that had bought all these sort of moribund trade titles, Billboard, The Hollywood Reporter, Adweek, um, something called The Clio's, um, Show West, which is like exhibition for theatrical, like, sure. and these sort of sad, tired, previous generation um, trade brands. And Beckman, who had he had been the publisher of Vogue, and and he's like the ultimate. I kind of jokingly call him Barnum Bailey and Beckman. He's this old school showman, and so he he is British, and he's like, darling, you got to do this. We're going to make it fabulous, fabulous. It's going to be 
I, like he had all sorts of analogies. The Economist meets Vanity Fair, or, you know, and all all, all sorts of. And basically, he just wanted to be able to take it to um, consumer advertisers to sell. And uh, and so he just he said it'll be glossy and beautiful, and you'll get to redo the website. And so. And from there, it was. It took a little bit of convincing to move to Los Angeles to, for my husband, who assumed all the worst things about Los Angeles. Um, but then we said yes, and we moved out. And so the Hollywood Reporter at the time was like literally almost out of business, probably weeks if not months from going out of business. Um, it had this new ownership, and I was given this free this license, which was sort of a publishing dream, like make it into something great. And I, so, you know, I inherited this existing trade staff, which had seen like round after round of layoffs and really bad headlines. And I think as some of your audience may recall, it was the, it was the Nikki Fink era. And the the whole narrative was like, you know, the world has gone completely digital. These old brands are dead. And so, you know, everyone who had worked at these legacy trades was sort of, was had incredibly poor morale. And, and then, very quickly, we started to change things. And um, it, it went from sort of this sad also ran, I would say within the course of maybe even several months into sort of this addictive, like mindshare owning brand in the community. Sure. So when you're looking back on uh, changes that you implemented to help turn it around, what specifically sort of what sort of stories or, uh, you know, ideas, topics were you guys tackling that helped kind of make it more interesting and, and a must read for people? For anyone who, who works or who consumes any kind of trade press, things endemic to a certain industry, there, there are certain bad journalistic habits that happen. And oftentimes out of survival that you, the industries that you're supposed to report on, they also might advertise or the subscribers. And so you start to maybe not report as aggressively as you would. Um, and there was a history at the Hollywood Reporter of, let's say, of Sony or Warner Brothers calling the publisher, complaining when a story they thought they weren't going to like was getting reported and the story would get killed. And so you had that bad dynamic at work or they would threaten to pull ads. You also had this other like more insidious dynamic happening where reporters would actually start to self-censor themselves. And I recall when I got to the Hollywood Reporter, they would, some of the writers would just take stuff out that like, you know, I always said like the greatest thing is when you're in a meeting and people say, oh my God, you wouldn't believe this thing that I learned and, and or said that this person said at this interview, then it wouldn't show up in the story. And then the reason would sometimes be, well, I don't want to make anyone mad. I don't think some people are going to like that. And um, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Like you, your first interest is always the person, is always the reader, uh, you know, readers at mm-hmm. that point. And, um, and so I, there were a few, so I, you know, for like, I think about three months, I still oversaw the last gasp of the Hollywood Reporter as a daily newspaper. Just like the thinnest, I mean, you could not have a thinner, uh, paper, you know, if you try and yeah. um, put in some pretty provocative stories and stories that got people talking. And um, one of them was about this succession plan at Warner Brothers that for those who followed the plot closely, there was a bake off among three executives at Warner Brothers after they uh, after they had ousted the legendary Alan Horn. And uh, it, was a, it was a lot of chaos that basically predated but presaged where Warner Brothers has ended up today. And that was almost unheard of at the time. Like, 
we didn't sanction this story. How, why are you possibly doing the story? Another one was there was an executive who ran ABC television named Steve McPherson, and he suddenly left his job. And this was, remember, pre-Me Too, pre-stories being mm-hmm. done. Um, and we were we were able to confirm, Kim Masters, the great Kim Masters, was able to confirm that there had been sexual misconduct issues at play as part of his exit. And we reported that. And that was sort of like, you know, people were like, whoa, like, like who fed the Hollywood Reporter their Wheaties? And, um, and so then, uh, you know, from that, I remember I would say to people all the time, like, why are you so afraid of being interesting? What's the worst thing that's going to happen if we're interesting? And also making them realize the difference of the power dynamic, like, like, and that people don't give you news. People don't cooperate with you because they like you. They cooperate or give you news because they think you have influence and and have some you know power in the world. And I think that was a that was sort of this sea change. And I, I feel like coming from the world of New York publishing, which at that point wasn't really intertwined at all with this world of trade publishing, I think that was something that people who grew up in the New York New York publishing world probably viewed differently than people who were on this like trade island stuck out here. And so, yeah, I think it, it was a lot of just um, showing how to win. And I, there's something about creating this culture of winning that's incredibly, like, journalists love it. And that, like, one great story begets another great story. And to sort of see that unfurl was, like, it was super exciting for me and super exciting, I believe, for the staff. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, it's, it's interesting uh, hearing you talk about advertising because the advertising model and we'll we'll talk about this a little more when when we when we talk about the Ankler. The advertising model seems to be you know at best in flux and at worst kind of uh, dying. Um, but at the at the time, I mean, this was still a huge huge business. I mean, for for uh, for for newspapers for trade publications yeah. in particular. I mean, it it that is where that is where you make the money, and you can you can you can still even today make a pretty decent chunk of change on that sort of stuff. Um, how, how have you seen that shift over the last 10 to 15 years or so? So the shifts are definitely different in the entertainment, the endemic trade entertainment space, than they are in the larger advertising community. The larger advertising community, we all know the saga, Google and Facebook um, have taken away, mm-hmm. you know, they've devalued digital properties because of this or that. And all of that is 100% true. But in the entertainment space, it's sort of inverse thing has happened, there's this category of advertising called for your consideration. And um, yes, all of it, like (laughs) we'd love for you to consider, you know, whatever, being the Ricardos and, you know, Amazon Studios is currently our sponsor on on the Angler. Um, But it is so one of the ways, one of these old school, old timey traditions of Hollywood is one of the ways people validate themselves here is to be awarded by their peers. And, um, you know, self-congratulation is, you know, it's the biggest business in Hollywood. And that's why you see, that's why studios do very specific things. Like they'll take out a billboard outside of, I'm making this up, where Leonardo DiCaprio drives every day. So they, so he feels like he's getting taken care of. And that's, you know, there's vanity, Mm -hmm. there's ego, um, there's talent management, lots of things at play there. 
winning an award is definitely one of them. And so, so when I started at the Hollywood Reporter, this was very much a studio business. You had Warner Brothers as the biggest advertiser. You know, you had this world of awards consultants who placed advertising. They'd like they'd like to see, you know, Steven Spielberg liked to see his ads in print. So they would make sure, you know, you have a full page glossy ad of was it Lincoln? Yeah, Lincoln and um it was very much this, you know, unchanged model. And then, uh, you know, come 2015, 2016, suddenly um, this whole Netflix thing is not going away. And it's making, it's making all these other um, entrants into the marketplace, all these other studios and companies in the market be, you know, think like, oh my God, it's like an assisted suicide. We're part of, we can't keep selling our content and then we're starting our own streaming services. And that's when you saw, um, you know, the first rumblings of Disney Plus or um, an HBO Max. Um, of course, Amazon and mm-hmm. Apple entered the fray. And the streaming wars has reinvigorated this for your consideration advertising market to the point where it's never been bigger. And the three biggest advertisers in the space now, you know, good, goodbye Warner Brothers. It's now Apple, Amazon and Netflix. And so mm-hmm. and the kooky thing about this space is that uh, you do not need scale. You do not need to create some narrative of, well, we're almost as big as Google if we mash up with this place and that place and try to sell advertising that way. They like these small targeted audiences filled with people they know are voting or can spread influence within industry about uh, any given project. Yeah. I want to jump on that in one sec because I feel like that is the uh, raison d'etre of the angler, you know, small targeted uh, influential audience. Um, but I, I, I am curious from your perspective, do you think that the the preponderance of the four-year consideration market skews coverage in terms of like how how movies – know this is – so this is a thing that I see people complaining about a lot is that, uh, you know, oh – uh, all of these awards bloggers are, you know, they don't care about the actual movies. That's all horse race uh, politics t- style coverage. You know, we're, you know, what about the actual films? What about the art? Um, and I think there is some, there's something to that, but it is also just an entirely different thing. And I am, I'm, I'm curious from your POV, if you, if you think that this is a, a negative or a positive or just the way of the world. All of that. I think that, um, <laughs> I would say the trade press became more influential over the last decade in terms of influencing other media. And there was, and I, I guess other more, um, you know, I would say New York based media. Uh, I do think the Hollywood reporter played a big part in that, the success of it, like reorienting people to the news and information coming out of Los Angeles. And so as we know, in all kinds of media, you know, there are narratives that get put out in the world that often set other narratives. And uh, and I do think that is definitely the case with this so-called awards race in Hollywood, where people gravitate towards these projects that to, to write about or to cover for many reasons. There becomes availability of the talent to media. Um, there might potentially be ad buys associated with it. Um, that this idea of a race is much more interesting than, you know, picking random stories to talk about. I mean, there are a lot of reasons. I think that this awards race conversation has probably become much more diffuse and diluted in the last few years because people aren't really going into theaters to watch these shows and everything has sort of ended up being something on a streaming platform you may or may not have. Uh, And I think just the whole idea of reaching consensus on anything is, um, is gone. (laughs) That you can, you can't have yeah. like there. I think this is this is basically how you know the Spider Man defied this the, the recent Spider Man movie. Like 
these mass entertainment moments of, uh, you know, where something swept the nation. Um, I mean, this is, those moments have long uh, disappeared and, um, you know, which explains a lot of why people don't really watch award shows. You know, no one's going to like, I, I am going to predict that the Oscars will have pretty low ratings. The, all the nominees may have a horse in the race, but the audience no longer does. And, mm-hmm. and that, that changes the whole experience of, um, you know, why do you watch the Super Bowl? Because you want to see, well, not the Patriots now, but the Patriots, you know, compete against whatever, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And um, and right. you care deeply about it. But there are not people in America on the edge of their seat wondering whether Belfast is going to win Best Picture. Sure, sure. It's a problem. It's a, as somebody who really enjoys watching the award shows and talking about them. It is it is a it's a it's a real it's a real problem. Um, all right. So let's let's talk about the Ankler. Uh, full disclosure, I wrote uh, a piece for the Ankler. Uh, Richard reached out to me and asked me to write something on China's influence on Hollywood. I was very happy to thank you for running it. And, you know, really letting good me. piece. So thank you. It was like, <laughs> thank you. And, thank you know, you. And I'm someone who obviously follows the news a lot in this space. And, and I think this is part of the value of the Ankler is that is that to see it all put together in an analytical context, it's sort of like, holy crap, this is bananas. Anyway, so to the listener, Sunny did this amazing piece, just t- basically talking about how um, this space of like obsequience to China that has occurred for decades now um, in order to try to win the Chinese market by Hollywood has resulted, like it's like blown up in their face and to the point where like whatever levers they pull are backfiring. And I'm just going to talk about your story somewhere, Sunday, and not let you talk about it, but like to the point, <laughs> to the point where um, Marvel, which is owned by Disney, no longer can get their movies released in China. And I thought it was, you know, the day after your column ran, Sunny there was that crazy headline that Woody Allen, pariah of all entertainment, um, who movies cannot get released in America. China picked up that movie to release, and which felt like very, yeah. very much like a giant snub. <laughs> yes, I it, well, it was. I saw somebody. I saw somebody tweet something on. So I'm just going to steal this. But you know, every studio has like five movies right now that they want released in China. You know, big tentpole style movies, and the Chinese officials are like, "Ah, oh, we're going to do Woody Allen." Because why not? You know, it has Timothy Chalamet in it. The, the our, our people love Timothy Chalamet. He's gonna, he's, it's gonna blow up here. Right, but, it was very we're not funny. gonna love Shang Chi, which is set right. <laughs> largely set in China. Um, so it's, and felt very much like a movie that Disney was making specifically for the Chinese market. I mean, yes. it was, it was, you know, uh, very respectful of the Chinese history and traditions and like filmmaking style. I mean, it was, but it was not. a. It was an interesting yeah, and, thing. Um, yes. And I think that these gymnastics that you pointed out that Hollywood has gone through, uh, I mean, that uh, obviously there's the John Cena incident where True. God forbid he called Taiwan a country. And um, and, and uh, I think your readers probably know that China does not recognize Taiwan as a country. And this apology he gave where I think he said he went on Weibo, a Chinese social media platform. And I think he, he said he was very sorry, not just very sorry, but very, 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 very sorry. I think he used five varies uh, to apologize. And, um, and you know, Fast and Furious 9 still did not get a release 
the movie that he that that had caused the problems. Yeah. Well, I uh, I think F nine got a oh, release, but then in its second weekend dropped like eighty five percent or something. Yeah. It was it was like they get they sh- they shut it they shut it yeah. down. Everybody everybody sucked. So uh, anyway, one of the reasons I was excited to write for the Anklers because I know it does have a it has a pretty influential audience and you know even if it's even if it's locked and you know I'm, i share it on twitter and I, I can't get the, the twitter kudos you know which is what writers crave i know people are reading it people of influence and power are reading it and what the angler and what what you guys are doing calls to mind to me is i don't know how familiar you are with the washington dc journalism market but uh mike oh, allen what mike allen has done in washington yeah. dc Sure. So, so, you know, it, like the, the, you, you have these newsletters that are, that are hugely influential, you know, the, the must reads, you know, first at Politico, then at Axios. Um, and then, you know, he, he has basically created, uh, he has created a whole little niche for himself. That's like, I get the email to the important people, they read it. And that sets the agenda sure. for the day. And I'm curious how you, I, 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 I'm really curious how you guys are, are going to kind of expand that and make it into into a a hugely profitable thing because you guys are, are in the the newest Y Combinator class, right? We that are. Is, uh, we are. You so there's 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 somebody with money somewhere who was like, we can make this huge. We can make this huge. Yes. And I'm I'm curious to pick your brain on how you think because as somebody in the Substack space, I would like to make my thing huge sure. as well. I want to I want to I'm trying to get I'm I want to pick your brain here and well, see what you think. So a few things that are interesting about that. Um, one is that uh, Y Combinator, I think I can say this, actually reached out to us and recruited us to join. And we, you know, we're like, wait, us? <laughs> do, do you, are you sure you didn't mean, you know, Anchor Batteries, the battery pack company? <laughs> like, like you meant us? And so, um, and we had a conversation with one of the partners there, and we just loved it. And he said, um, and he said to us stop thinking about this as a potential $100 million brand. We're like, well, that would be nice. Um, And why don't you start thinking about it as a $1 billion brand? And so obviously that was exciting to hear. And and part of what the Y Combinator program is, which we're in right now, and, you know, we're attending school, like, um, I joke, we're like the Steve Buscemi meme uh, of, the, of the older people in back in school. Um, but he, one of the things that we, that's been great about this is sort of like, Think and think differently about content, and and I think that uh, one of the things that I can say is that we believe our value is as a subscription company, um, and you know we're not selling you know Quip toothbrushes or Harry's razors, but um, something else that people who work in this industry and maybe some others definitely need. And then thinking how is that how is that servicing of an industry expandable? into maybe other parts of the world, um, maybe other industries. But if, if you look at the growth of the global entertainment economy, it has you know, streaming, um, the amount of money that's being poured into it, the valuations are declining currently of Netflix and other companies. I mean, if you just follow the growth of production and entertainment around the world, it's pretty significant. And so the entertainment community and the dollars associated with the entertainment community have never been larger. And they are expected to grow, I think, into a something, something trillion market by 2025. And so that all sounds great. You know, I think on the day-to-day front, I mean, we are really bogged down in like, (laughs) in like, you know, the most basic details, like where is that story? There's a typo. 
Uh, why are we posting this this time and not that time? I mean, like, we're, like, oh my God, we yeah. we are we were supposed to tape a podcast tomorrow and we don't have a script. Um, no, not even tomorrow. We're supposed to tape a podcast in twenty minutes. We don't have a script. So, I mean, there there there's the mundane and the expected, and then sort of the okay, like let's figure out can this become something you know not just kind of big but really big, and hopefully we can get somewhere in between. Yeah. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about specifically what you guys are doing. So uh, before I think before you before you had come on board, uh, the entertainment strategy guy. Yeah. Another one of my favorite uh, reads and follows was was contributing uh, a weekly or a, a monthly newsletter. Um, and he he's great. Uh, you guys should buy buy him buy just buy him the ESG just bring them over. But then there's also a new newsletter that you guys have uh, you guys have mentioned and that I've signed up for the oh, optionist. Thank you for signing up. And I have a question about I have a question about this because I wasn't I wasn't entirely it wasn't entirely clear to me um, in the email. So is the optionist part of the Ankler family? Will that newsletter be included in the subscription? Or is it a secondary like if you if you like the optionist, you have to sign up for that, like signing up for cable, and then also you need to get HBO? Yes, it'll be your HBO or stars or you know, whatever um, separate service. The optionist is a separate product. I think we're trying to be very mindful of not spamming you know, oversending and um, we've gotten feedback that we send too much. We're sending too little, all of the, all of the above. But we, one of the things we want to do is build tools that Hollywood can use um, uh, for, for their job, like for the, for, you know, these decision makers, um, you know, people who are aware of the Ankler and consume it already can use um, to help be better at their jobs. And the optionist is one of those. It might not be that interesting to you because we are targeting it to development executives and the publishing community where there's this whole publishing development super highway now because I think it's something like 90% of all projects now originate uh, from the intellectual property that comes from books. Um, and we're including in there also, you know, backlisted books, which means like old titles that no one ever took a bite at, uh, at, at in the past, um, and certain journalism stories that we think are worth highlighting. Yeah. It's interesting. So did you, did you guys go to him with the idea for the newsletter or did he come to you? I'm just, I, I'm curious how this, how this all came about. Yeah, it was my idea. And I've known Andy Lewis, who is the writer of the optionist forever. He was the books editor at the Hollywood reporter. And he's one of these people who, I would say, you know, like cultural polymath. He just knows something about everything. And, you know, sports, mm -hmm. social media, like chicklets and, you know, reality television. He is, I mean, I consider myself sort of high-low. He is, what you know, he is much more high-low than I am, just sort of understands the breadth of, uh, of the culture. Yeah. And how does how does he find these? But I mean, is it just what whatever comes across his his shelf? He sees a he reads a review and he's like, oh, that sounds interesting. I, sh I should check it I mean, out. He's a, I mean, he's a voracious reader. So uh, so he has all these publishing relationships from when he did books, when he was the books editor at The Hollywood Reporter. And he actually has started a column called Rights Available at The Hollywood Reporter, which highlighted just a few books that uh, that he would recommend that obviously had rights available. And so I, so he just put a little, for, for the production of this column, he's taking that a step further and it's subjective. Like, and so it, it's going to be about having the audience believe that, you know, be aligned with his taste. And so he, he's looking at things that go, everyone here is a book scout, you know, who has, who works in any kind of major production entity um, that probably might have like 50, hundred titles on it at every report. He's trying to not, not, 
B, give you the obvious things that he knows are getting shot by the agencies that week, but dig in a little, we heard repeatedly, people want to find hidden gems. And there's just constant anxiety for people who work in this community that, oh my God, I'm missing out on something. And one example that uh, a friend of mine um, gave me, who's pretty senior in the world of production and development here, she said that um, um, the example being Twilight, which Twilight was on every Book Scouts list. Everyone saw the log line, which was like, you know, vampires, blah, 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 like, and everyone passed on it. It, but there was one place that actually read it and developed it, and uh, I guess it was some. It was then Summit Entertainment that ended up merging with mm-hmm. Lionsgate, yeah. and they ended up having what everybody wants, which is a gigantic, you know, multi-movie franchise. Um, and so that that's the thing that kind of haunts people who work in that in this field is like, oh my god, I don't want to be the idiot who passed on, you know, name it Mad Men or you know Twilight and or whatever project got away. Yeah. As you mentioned, this is like kind of a very specifically focused newsletter. It's for it's for people who are actually in development and uh, and, and, and and I suppose production. But, uh, you know, the again, the, the interesting thing about the Ankler is the the list of people who are reading it. Uh, and I, I when you when you guys were talking about, you you know, coming on board, you said your eyes kind of just yeah. popped out when you saw some of the some of the folks who were reading uh, the Angler describe to, I, so this, this podcast is aimed at a much more basic audience. Describe to, uh, them the sort of person who, when you see their name, you're like, oh, wow, this, this, this person is, is reading it. Who were you looking for? So these are the names that probably a lot of your audience know that would possibly be bold faced in, if they read something that bold faced names, but, um, so these are people who run studios, maybe some legendary producers or directors, um, uh, people in, who occupy C-suites, who have a lot of impact, uh, people who might run <laughs> some of our biggest streaming services. And, um, and so it, um, it's, it's just like to have that. So it's, it's in many ways working backwards from what probably some established media do, which is you probably first build scale and then you try to get those people like that's a, a sign of your influence. And this is a little mm-hmm. bit backwards. Like there's the influence and you have the very, very top of the pyramid. So how do you build this out to bring more people under the tent? And I think with, with the optionist, and I think you'll see some other announcements coming in the next few weeks, it's, we want to have, we want to have people engaged in all corners of the entertainment community, um, including, including those at the um, entry level rungs who just want to figure out how to get a foot in the door. Um, and, um, you know, people who need other information, uh, to do their jobs well. So I think when I, when I think about the best execution of the Ankler, where we want to be in a, in a few months is a really smart mix of, um, of, uh, storytelling, um, that Richard does so well and, uh, utility. Great. Well, that was pretty much everything I wanted to ask. Um, I always like to close the show by asking if there's anything I should have asked. What what should folks know about the Ankler or the state of Hollywood media in general um, that we didn't talk about here today? What do you think? Uh, what do you think the folks should know? Of course, I would love to hear from any of your audience who I would love to know what would make them subscribe to the Ankler. This is a very white combinator <laughs> thing, by the way. You are supposed to relentlessly hound your audience and ask them what they want. So I'm going to do some relentless hounding right here. Um, but I think the okay. uh, I think separate from that, it's um, 
this is not unique to Hollywood, but uh, but there are parts of it that are unique. Everyone's a little bit unmoored at the moment. I think um, the changes to the business that have happened over the last two years through you know social revolutions, through um, through obviously COVID, uh, through the you know the technological change that has that has come down on Hollywood, where basically all these legacy studios, the ones you know and grew up with, have all reoriented themselves around a streaming future. And um, I was on Bloomberg yesterday, and I made this comment about Netflix, which I think is a, is probably the you know one trillion dollar question that's going to determine the, the next few few years, which is what if streaming never actually makes money. Uh, and I think we've seen Netflix's, you know, stock get punished over the last few days. And and there is a real potential reckoning that happens if no one can prove that this model is profitable after an entire industry has been reoriented to support it. Yeah, it's dark. That is a dark thought. That is, I mean, I, I mean, especially looking at uh, how much money how much revenue Netflix actually generates. I mean, they, they, I was doing the math for, for another podcast yesterday and I, you know, they, 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 Netflix alone generated, I think about three quarters of what the total theatrical worldwide box office was in 2019, the last year that really matters. And like, I, if you can't make money with that, well, wow, what, exactly. But I on? think the, the untold story for the consumers, so you have all these, listeners out there who probably sometimes feel like they reach the end of the internet. They're like, oh, nothing to watch. And it costs so much money to put on these shows. So you have to, um, you have to keep feeding the beast. The beast is never satisfied. And so you have to keep making more, which costs more. And on top of that, if you remember when we all had cable, you could watch these really, you know, not such high quality reality television shows like, you know, uh, Honey Boo Boo or, you know, Make It and Afraid or things that did not cost a lot of money. But in the world of like premium, sure. we are a premium subscription service and we're charging you an incredible amount of money. And in fact, we're going to raise our price to $20 a month. You cannot stock your, um, you cannot stock your inventory with with that kind of programming. And so the cost of production only have gotten higher, including the, I think it's about a 20 to 25%, basically COVID tax, because all the protocol costs so yeah. much money as well. So this is not a cheap business to be in. And when Wall Street decides we're done rewarding companies who don't make money, which by the way, is never going to happen. But if that ever did happen, that creates a, a really you know different dynamic. Yeah. Well, Janice, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, the Anklers, the newsletter, I'll have a link to it in the email. Go sign up. Once again, you've heard Richard Rushfield on the show a bunch of times. Now you've, you've heard his new partner, Janice. Men, we are very excited to, uh, you know, welcome a new entrant into the Substack universe. I love it. And uh, yeah, go sign up. So anyway, uh, I'm Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, this has been The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you guys next week. 